Welcome to the show, everybody. We have a lot to talk about, a lot to go over. The coronavirus appears to be slowing down. The spread of it has flattened. In fact, it seems to be trending downwards, leading to the big discussion, the big debate of when we open back up the economy. We're going to be talking about that. Also in this episode, I'm going to be discussing this video clip of a venture capitalist that's going viral because he said that some billionaires should get wiped out that some companies should go out of business and shouldn't receive help from the government. So I'm going to be responding to this, sharing some thoughts on it, why I don't actually agree with him on this subject. So we'll be looking into that as well. Now, before getting into those news items, I want to do a quick portfolio update. The current value is $82,000. I'm down about $2,000 right now. This has been something where I've been investing during this downturn, even with the bad news. I read the news all the time. I stay up to speed with most of it, and most of it is negative. Most of the news that you're going to see on a daily basis will be negative news. And the positive news, a lot of times, is still twisted and turned to be negative. This all comes down to the type of influences you listen to and your investing strategy. One of the influences that I listen to and somebody that got me excited about investing was Peter Lynch. The first book that I read on investing was called Beating the Street. It's by Peter Lynch. And he gives a lot of really straightforward advice. One of the pieces of advice that he gives, I think, is so valuable. It's extremely important. And a lot of investors really struggle with this piece of advice. In the stock market, the most important organ is the stomach. It's not the brain. There's always, on the way to work, the amount of bad news you can hear is almost infinite now. So the question is, can you take that? Saying that the most important organ is a stomach, not the brain, is another way of saying that your temperament, your ability to stomach downturns and stay invested and stick to your game plan, that is more important than how intelligent you are. It doesn't matter how much formal training you have. It doesn't matter how smart you are. If you don't have the ability to stomach downturns, you're going to lose money in the stock market. He said the same thing 30 years ago in his book that he published, that the amount of bad news you hear on a daily basis is constant. It's limitless. There's no end to the amount of bad news that you can hear, and there's definitely no difference now. In the past two weeks, we have headlines like this. From the Wall Street Journal, the coronavirus to cause deep U.S. contraction, 13% unemployment. From the New York Times, the U.S. is nowhere close to reopening the economy, experts say. From the Financial Times, stock buybacks expected to half as companies bolster defenses. From CNBC, Mark Cuban has doubts about the market comeback and is raising more cash. From the Wall Street Journal, nearly a third of U.S. apartment renters didn't pay April rent. These are all headlines, again, from just the past two weeks, just the past couple of weeks. There's no wonder why investors have a tough time staying invested. When you're reading headlines like this, it really does make you think, why am I investing? All the news is really bad. What's going to happen in the future? I'm going to lose all of my money. On top of that, we have extreme amounts of volatility. The stock market has gone up and down pretty drastically over the past month. Peter Lynch talks about the same thing, his performance during high volatility when he ran the Magellan Fund. 13 years I ran Magellan, the market went down nine times, 10% or more. I had a perfect record. I went down more than the market. Every time I went down, I went down more. So I, I just didn't worry about it. The point is, would you say to yourself, do I need this money in a year? Do I need this money in two years? Do I need this money in three years? So my, longer term, stock market's been the best place to be last 10 years, last 30 years, last 130 years. But if you need the money in one or two years, you shouldn't be buying stocks. You should be in a money market fund. I try my best to emulate the advice that Peter Lynch gives here. He says when the market goes into the red, when we have a big downturn, 
as long as you're invested for the long term and as long as you know the companies you own, you shouldn't worry about it. You shouldn't concern yourself that much with what the immediate performance of the stock market is. That's something that you really can't control. So with my portfolio, I've tried to focus on some of the advice that Peter Lynch gives. Having a strong stomach, not really worrying too much if we get into a downturn. If the portfolio goes down, if the market goes down, that's something that doesn't concern me too much. I'm at negative 1600 bucks right now. A month ago, I was at negative $16,000. Negative $16,000. So if I would have sold out during that time, I would have realized those losses. But here we are at negative 1600 bucks. Who knows what direction the market's going to go? It could go down and have that second drop that everybody's predicting, where the market goes down another 30%. We could have that. I'll continue to invest in what I think are great companies that I want to hold for the next 5 to 10 years. So if the market drops, that's not something I'm too concerned about. Now, I'll go ahead and quickly cover some of the changes I've made with my portfolio. So in the tech sector, I've increased the amount of money in tech overall, but I've sold out of two different companies in it. So the companies I sold out of are Broadcom and Cisco. Both of them are doing fine. Both of them are in the green. They both are paying dividends, so there's no issue there. You might be asking, why did I sell out of these companies? The reason I sold out of Broadcom and Cisco is because I've decided I want to make my tech sector focused on companies that have a strong focus on subscription and software income. So companies I think have a strong moat, they have recurring billing, and they have a lot of software services. Broadcom and Cisco, it's true they might have some recurring billing, but they're largely hardware companies. Cisco's a hardware IT company. Broadcom is a semiconductor company. That's primarily where they get their income. So I decided to sell out of those companies and put it into Visa, Apple, and Microsoft. Microsoft is definitely a software company. They make some money selling tablets and other devices, but they make most of their money selling software. Apple historically has been a hardware company, but they've done a really good job of shifting a ton of their income over to software, over to recurring billing. They have the iCloud, they have the App Store, they have Apple Music, they have Apple TV+. They continue to expand their software subscription services, which is creating a pretty big moat for Apple. So this is a company that even though they make a ton of money selling hardware, I think that they're really positioned to be a software company as well. Visa is definitely a technology software company. They don't make money selling hardware. They just acquired Plaid, which is another software company. So these are the type of companies that I'm looking at building my tech portfolio in. Software dividend paying companies, I think, with large moats. Another company that I'm potentially looking at adding to this pie would be ADP. So that's one that I've been researching a little bit. I haven't decided to add it yet. There is one more company that I've decided to sell out of. It's in my finance sector. I have sold out of Wells Fargo. I ultimately decided that it's just not a company that I really want to own. There's a lot of companies in my portfolio that I'd rather be invested in, that I'd rather own those companies. So I removed Wells Fargo. I think that they have a lot of issues they're facing. They have the whole publicity issue with their scandal going on. Politicians don't like them. As well as the general consensus I get from people is that a lot of people have pretty negative experiences there, more than I hear about any other bank. And It might be anecdotes, but I hear a lot of anecdotes about people having bad experiences at Wells Fargo. So I ultimately decided to sell out of it. So I no longer have Wells Fargo. I still have a lot of other banks. I have two Canadian banks. I have Bank of America and JP Morgan, as well as some other financial holdings. Another thing I'll mention is in my consumer pie, I've decided to keep Coca-Cola as well as Pepsi. 
So instead of selling out of Coca-Cola and funding Pepsi solely, I'm just going to have both the companies. I looked at them and they both just have too strong of balance sheets. Both of them are really good companies and they focus on a little bit of different things. They both have beverages, obviously, but Pepsi has Frito-Lay. It focuses on a lot more food brands. So I think they cover different things as well. So that's pretty much it. I've been filtering my portfolio, trying to move to companies that I think have the strongest balance sheet, that strongest five-year outlook, and are currently undervalued. Okay, now moving on from that, let's get into some news. Pretty much all the economic news is negative right now. All of it's going to be bad. The big question for investors is, how priced in is it? Is it more negative than we're expecting, or is it in line with our expectations? So that's what a lot of investors are asking. We have news like this. March retail sales plunge record 8.7% as the coronavirus shutdowns took hold. So retail sales are down quite a bit. We have all the major banks showing a huge reduction in profit. Goldman's profit tumbles 46%, but banks post strongest bond trading results in five years. Bank of America posts 45% decline in first quarter profit, braces for big loan losses. So these type of negative headlines economically are what we should expect to see right now, because we're going to see a lot more of this in the upcoming weeks. Now we have this negative economic news mixed in with what is mostly positive health news. The curve has flattened out, if we look at this, and it even seems to be on a downward trend. This is what I think is the biggest news. I think it's the thing investors are paying the most attention to. So out of all the news that you can consider, I think the virus going away is the single biggest factor. The markets are very forward-looking. If we look at all this stuff, it's bad right now, but the market's going to ask, where are we going to be in three years? That's the question most investors are going to be asking. So when they look at this and the virus getting under control, being in decline, and then us resuming economic activity, that's what a lot of investors are going to be looking at. When is the economy going to reopen? Now, that's probably the biggest question I have. When is the economy going to open back up? How long is this pandemic, is this shutdown going to last? This question is asked to Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary. Is the economy going to open back up in the month of May? So in one month. I, I do, Jim. I think as, as soon as the president feels comfortable with the medical issues, we are making everything necessary that American companies and American workers can be open for business and that they have the liquidity that they need to operate their business in the interim. He says yes. Their expectation is that next month, in the month of May, we're going to see the economy start to open back up. Now, They've described it as not a light switch, but a dimmer switch where it will slowly open back up. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. I'm interested in details of how that slow opening is going to look like. But either way, knowing that we're going to be opening back up the economy in the month of May is something that investors are keeping in mind. That's something in the back of their mind. Hey, the economic data is horrible right now. We're going to get more of this terrible economic data. But what is it going to look like three months from now? Are people still going to be struggling just as much, or are people going to get back to work? So we have a lot of different news that we have to pay attention to. Not only do we have the business news, the economic side, we have companies giving lowered earnings, their guidance is going to be lowered, we have things like retail sales going down. We also have the health issue, we have the pandemic. How is the virus doing? Is it still trending downwards? That's a pretty big piece of news to pay attention to. But there's also a third thing, the Fed. The Fed has been an incredible force in fighting this downturn. The level of actions they have taken are completely unprecedented. It's never happened in the history of our country. The Fed can also contribute in important ways by providing a measure of relief and stability during this period of constrained economic activity and by using our tools to ensure that the eventual recovery is as vigorous as possible. To those ends, 
We have lowered interest rates to near zero in order to bring down borrowing costs. And we've also committed to keeping rates at this low level until we are confident that the economy has weathered the storm and is on track to achieve our maximum employment and price stability goals. Even more importantly, we have acted to safeguard financial markets in order to provide stability to the financial system and to support the flow of credit in the economy. As a result of the economic dislocations caused by the virus, some essential financial markets had begun to sink into dysfunction, and many channels that households, businesses, and state and local governments rely on for credit had simply stopped working. We acted forcefully to get our markets working again, and as a result, market conditions have generally improved. We are deploying these lending powers to an unprecedented extent, enabled in large part by the financial backing from the Congress and the Treasury. We will continue to use these powers forcefully, proactively, and aggressively until we're confident that we are solidly on the road to recovery. The Fed is offering liquidity in every single frozen market, offering an endless amount of liquidity and credit everywhere that it's needed. And they say that they're going to do that forcefully, proactively, and aggressively until things stabilize. The Fed support is an enormous force in the market right now, and Jerome Powell gives no indication that he's going to slow down or stop until we give a full recovery. In fact, he goes out of his way to say the complete opposite. He's going to continue this level of support until we get through this pandemic. Now, I'll be the first to say that I did not expect the Fed to be this aggressive in fighting the downturn. I knew that they would act during the downturn. Jerome Powell has been very clear that he's going to support the economy in whatever means necessary. Now, typically, that's lowering interest rates and doing some quantitative easing. But what we see the Fed doing is far beyond what we saw in 2008. What they've done is drastically expanded their level of support. This is a memo from Howard Marks. He summarizes some of the events the Fed has done. He says, over the last few weeks, the Fed, SEC, and Treasury have announced an unprecedented program of stimulus, support, rescue, and regulatory relief. They continue to bring new actions forward and expand the size and scope of existing ones. There's no reason to believe there's anything they won't do or any magnitude they won't exceed. I was among many who were worried a month ago about the limited scope of the Fed arsenal, given that the federal funds rate only stood at 1.5% and most past rate-cutting programs ran to about 500 basis points. Now we see the vast extent of the Fed's potential toolkit. Now, I was right there with Howard Marks on this. I was also concerned that the Fed had very limited ammo because the interest rates were already so low going into this downturn. In fact, I have a video titled, The Fed Uses All Ammo, right at the beginning of this downturn. That's wrong. The Fed apparently didn't use all ammo because it has unlimited ammo. So it did not use all ammo at the beginning of this downturn. CNBC reports that the Federal Reserve dramatically expanded its efforts to save the economy, even adding junk bonds to the list of assets it can buy, as a wave of businesses are anticipated to have trouble surviving the expected recession. The Fed said it would provide $2.3 trillion in programs. CNBC says the Fed expanded its corporate lending program to take into entirely new areas, including ETFs and companies that are rated below investment grade. It had previously announced a program to buy investment grade corporate debts and ETFs. It also will now accept AAA-rated commercial mortgage-backed securities and collateralized loan obligations. So, there you go. It appears that the uh, summarized version of this is that the Fed has unlimited ammo. It will go into virtually any type of market that has frozen up or had trouble and offer a limitless amount of liquidity. Again, this isn't the only factor in the marketplace, but it's a, it's a big one. The Fed's actions are certainly supporting the market right now. We have banks like Goldman Sachs saying that they're abandoning their bearish near-term view on stocks 
They believe the the worst is behind us. The bottom has already been seen. And part of the reason they give for this is they say, why? The combination of unprecedented policy support and the flattening viral curve have dramatically reduced downside risk for the U.S. So they give two different factors of why they think we've already seen the bottom of the market. One of them is the flattening of the curve, which we've already looked at. The other one is the support from the Fed. Both of those factors. They do give a caveat here, something that may cause another bottom. They say, if the U.S. does not experience a second surge in infections after the economy reopens, the do-whatever-it-takes stance of policymakers means that equity markets is unlikely to make new lows. So Goldman Sachs' prediction is, as long as we are smart about the way we reopen the economy, as long as we don't see another big resurgence of infections, we shouldn't see another low. We shouldn't see the market go down past where it's already been. Now, I would say if I had to choose, I probably agree with Goldman here, but it is what it is. It's a prediction. Goldman Sachs makes lots of predictions. They're wrong many times, so take it for whatever it's worth. Okay, now I need to talk about this video clip. This has gone completely viral. It's been shared on Reddit, Facebook, BuzzFeed, everywhere in between. So it's been shared everywhere outside of your normal investment channels. It's pretty much a clip of a venture capitalist that's brave enough to say that big companies should fail. So I'll go ahead and play it. But are, are you suggesting you keep saying propping up zombie companies? Are, are you are you arguing to let airlines, for example, fail? Yes. Why? I mean, how, how does that make sense in the broader scheme of, of the economy? Because it's not because when you look at what it means, this is why I'm saying like this is a lie that's been purported by Wall Street. When a company fails, it does not fire their employees. It goes through a packaged bankruptcy. And by the way, those are the rules of the game. That's right, because these are the people that purport to be the most sophisticated investors in the world. They deserve to get wiped out. But the employees don't get wiped out. How does anybody deserve to get wiped out? But just be clear, like, who are we talking about? We're talking about a hedge fund that serves a bunch of billionaire family offices. Who cares? Let them get wiped out. Who cares? They don't get to summer in the Hamptons. Who cares? That's pretty much it. Him saying that the airliners should go out of business, that Delta Airlines should go bankrupt, and that the shareholders, as a consequence, should get wiped out. The billionaires and hedge funds that own a large portion of these companies should be completely wiped out. Now, this message has resonated with a lot of people. There's a lot of people hurrahing capitalism here, saying that if these companies are so ill-prepared to go through a short duration without staying solvent, then they deserve to be wiped out, and the shareholders deserve to be wiped out with them. That's the the stance a lot of people have. They're in total agreement with him here. My confusion, or my question is, why do I not see the same concern about capitalism when it comes to individuals receiving their $1,200 IRS check? Shouldn't the same people have the principled stand for capitalism there? I don't see a lot of people arguing that this isn't how capitalism works. The individuals should be prepared for an economic downturn, that they should have a rainy day fund, they should have savings, that they should be prepared to go through a short duration of time having no savings. It seems like a lot of people want unadulterated capitalism when it comes to big businesses, but on an individual level, they're completely fine with the government intervening. They're completely fine with the individual stimulus. So I don't see a lot of sincerity here. There's lots of people that are all for capitalism, when it hurts other people, when it damages other companies, other people's finances. But then they're all for government stimulus when it helps them. They have no problem receiving government money when it's in their benefit. So that's a dynamic I'm seeing a lot of right now. 
Now, as far as I'm concerned, I've said in the previous episode that I consider myself a capitalist. I think that's the economic framework that leads to the most innovation and production and wealth generation over long periods of time. But I'm not a purist. I'm more of a pragmatist. If there's things a government can do to step in during temporary crises and help make things more fluid, help things go a little bit smoother during temporary troubles like this, I think they should. The pure capitalist approach would be If individuals can't afford to have one month without income, then they deserve to suffer. That would be the pure capitalist approach to this. They deserve to go through economic turmoil and have to take out debt or have to default. That's not something that I would advocate, even being a capitalist. I believe that the government should help out individuals that are going through a tough time right now, especially considering some of this shutdown is a result of the government. Not all of it. There would be some businesses that would still be shut down just with health concerns, but the government is a big part of what this shutdown is. So I do think the government should help individuals, and I think that they should help companies right now. I don't think it's reasonable to expect companies to go to zero revenue for multiple months. That's something that they really don't have in any type of projections. A pandemic of this size is something that happens once every 50 years. Companies don't really factor this in. So if the government can step in and temporarily help these companies, which will help the entire economy rebound quicker, that's a good thing for everybody. That helps out everybody. Another thing I'll mention is I see this a lot online, people acting like when the government comes in and bails out these big companies, that it's the taxpayer footing the bill. The taxpayer is helping out these big hedge funds and billionaires keep their wealth. That's the way that they view it. During the financial crisis, The bailouts have earned taxpayers billions of dollars. When the government comes in and bails out companies, it's not like there's no strings attached. The government tries to make a lot of money on every single bailout that they do. In total, 11 companies received at least $10 billion in bailouts from the government during the financial crisis. However, the government wasn't simply lending money to these companies. It was investing in them by taking ownership stakes. In most cases, the government was essentially buying shares of stock, much like ordinary investors do in their trading accounts. For the most part, the government was later able to sell those shares of stocks for a large profit in the years that followed. In fact, the government took a loss on only two of its 25 largest bailouts. Mortgage aggregators Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were the two largest financial crisis bailouts. Together, Fannie and Freddie received nearly $190 in bailout funds. However, the government has now netted more than $68 billion billion in profits from those investments. Both companies trade on over-the-counter markets. The taxpayer also made a killing on the vast majority of bank bailouts as well. The government turned a profit of more than $13.4 billion for Citibank. $5 $5 billion in profit for American International Group, AIG, $4.5 billion for Bank of America, and $3 billion for GMAC. They lost money on some companies like General Motors, but overall, the government made a lot of money. This was a profitable investment for the government. So like I said, I'm a capitalist. I think that's a good economic framework, but I don't worship it. It's not a religion. I'm a pragmatist. If there's things that the government can do to intervene and make all of our lives better, make the recovery better, make it so that individuals are going through a less stressful time during this, and prevent some companies that we're doing completely fine prior to this extreme situation we have, I think that that's something that they should do. And they have the opportunity to make money doing it. Now, another thing I'll point out here is if you think that my motive is to protect my investments... I don't have any holdings in airlines. So these companies were talking about receiving the bailout money. I don't own any of them. I don't have any investments in them. I don't own Boeing. In fact, in my entire portfolio, I don't believe I own any company that is receiving direct bailout money from the government. So 
that doesn't really have anything to do with my thoughts on this subject. Okay, let's get to some emails. Joseph at josephcarlsonshow.com. The email address is joseph at josephcarlsonshow.com if you'd like to send in a question or thought. The first one is from Anonymous. It says, Hi, Joseph. I'll start off by saying that I love the show and I always enjoy the interesting views you provide on investing in the economy. I recently took out a fairly large portion of my savings to invest in the market. I was going to wait until I finished my degree and had a steady source of income to start, but I thought now would be a better opportunity. I am a computer science student with a well-paying job already lined up for when I graduate this year, so I feel okay putting my money at risk in the market. So my question is, do you think it is a good idea to buy companies that are being hit hard in this time of crisis, for example, Marriott, Carnival, Airbus? As far as I'm aware, this rule of thumb is that the younger you are, the more risk you can take with investing. As well as that often with recessions, the best thing to do is buy the epicenter of the crisis. I have bought companies that I deem safe, Disney, Visa, some Irish companies as I am Irish, but wondering if I should take more risk. Would love to hear your opinion on this and look forward to more episodes. Well, I appreciate the email. I've been asked this same type of question quite a bit about companies like Marriott, Carnival, Royal Caribbean, uh, you mentioned Airbus, the type of companies that are really under fire with what we're facing right now. They have a lot of exposure to the problems we're facing, and a lot of these are facing potential bankruptcy. I think that this isn't something where you try to lump in all these companies together. They are in drastically different circumstances. They have different balance sheets. They have different abilities to come out on top of this. So I would look at it on a case-by-case basis and see which one you think has the best opportunity of coming out of this strong and within a certain amount of time. So you might want to look at the different balance sheets they have, see how much runway they have, and see how quickly, if the economy returns to normal, how quickly these companies will be back in operation. Now, in terms of the whole being more risky when you're younger, a lot of people throw this around. And the way that I see it used is almost like it's okay to lose a lot of money if you're young. That's the way to do it. It's almost a justification for, I'm young, I lost a lot of money carelessly, and that's okay because I'm young. Whatever stage in life you are, you don't want to lose money investing. At any stage of your investments, the goal is to not lose money. That's the number one and the number two rule that Warren Buffett outlines. Never lose money is number one, and number two is never break the first rule. I think the whole, I'm young, I can be riskier, has been made out to be, it's okay to lose money if you're younger. The way that I would try to reframe that is it's okay to have a much longer timeline if you're younger. So you can pursue investments that take a lot more time to work out whether or not they're profitable. Now, I would still view this the same way. What do you have the most high likelihood of getting a good return on your money? Is it companies like Marriott, Carnival, and Airbus? Or is it pretty solid companies that still have cash flow that have came down in price? Which way do you think that you can make more money over the next 10 years? That's up to your judgment. I've decided to try to target companies that I think are still undervalued, but they don't have nearly as much risk as the type of company that Carnival does. So there's potentially a much bigger potential reward for an investment in Carnival, but I think people oftentimes underestimate the amount of risk involved. That can lead to big losses that you want to avoid at whatever stage you're in. John says, you make valid points, but the market is overestimating how quickly the economy can reopen. You assume stabilizing death and infection rate will naturally lead to an imminent reopening. In fact, it's the shutdown that has stabilized the numbers. And accordingly, the solution is an extended shutdown, unless U.S. decides the economy is more important than the death rates. Now, John, there's a couple things I wanted to go through in this comment. One of them is you say that 
You assume stabilizing deaths and infection rate will naturally lead to an imminent reopening. I don't think I've used that term, imminent. I've never said that the reopening will be immediate. I said that I think it will be sooner than most people seem to think. I don't think that we'll be in complete lockdown for multiple months, as some people are assuming. I think that we'll have a partial reopening in the month of May, and we'll continue to monitor the amount of infections. If it starts to go up, we'll start to curtail our opening and and close some things back down. So I think that that will be the case. I don't think it will be an imminent reopening. Now, another thing you bring up is this same thing I see a lot of people bring up. Unless the U.S. decides that the economy is more valuable than the death rates. I see this false dichotomy that people continually bring up. This isn't something new. As a society, we've made judgment calls all the time where we have said the economic benefit of this activity exceeds the health risks. It's, it's worth it. It's worth the health risks involved. We've done that for hundreds of years. We've been making that judgment call. There's a note written by Edward Lampert in the New York Sun on this. He says driving an automobile is risky. In 2018, the number of auto-related fatalities in the United States was 36,560, according to the National Highway Traffic and Safety Administration. Yet we don't ban automobiles, nor do we impose a 10-mile-per-hour speed limit. Doing so would eliminate most of those deaths and injuries, but it would also adversely affect economic activity enabled by faster transportation of people and products. Overall, the benefits of automobiles exceed the costs. Individuals knowingly assume the risks. Businesses compete to make money by reducing those risks, to deal with market failures and externalities, and to provide a certain minimum floor. We have regulatory mechanisms imposed by government to mitigate risks and compensate for losses. These same approaches can be useful in guiding public policy response to coronavirus, showing the way to middle ground that minimizes harm without excessive cost to either the economy or individual freedom. We need to get America back to work quickly. Businesses and individuals can adapt dynamically and intelligently to guard their interests, seek opportunities, and make trade-offs. The government can provide traffic signals and safety standards. That approach to public health is consistent with a free and economically vibrant country, rather than in conflict with it. It's tested on our highways every day. So I think the point is, you can say that the U.S. doesn't care about health or, or people dying. The U.S. only cares about the economy. They only care about money, right? That's the way that a lot of people try to frame it. I just don't agree with that assessment of it. There are many decisions we make where we assume health risks for the economic benefit. Like this example mentioned, every time someone gets in a car and drives to work, the reason they're going to work is to earn an income. So they're assuming the health risks of getting in a car accident. That's a substantial health risk. That's one of the top killers in the U.S., automobile accidents. So every day people are assuming this type of health risk because they're making the judgment call that the economic benefit of having an income is worth the risk. That's the judgment we're making. So trying to frame this like we just don't care about human life, we just don't care about people, if we need to get certain parts of the economy back running, I think is a very unfair and unrealistic way of putting it. I think people really are trying to balance both sides of this. We're trying to minimize the loss of life while also not damaging the economy. And another thing I'll note is there's articles about this. There's a lot of economists that have looked at the consequences of the economy going down, of people losing income. And there are health consequences of that as well. There are a lot of negative health consequences associated with a lot of loss of income, people moving into poverty, people not being able to pay rent, and that type of thing. So I think this characterization that if you think some parts of the government should look at opening back up, you only care about the economy, I don't think that that's a fair way to look at it.
Sean says, hey, Joseph, thank you so much for the great content. I watched all your 85 episodes. I appreciate that, Sean. That's a a lot of content. Uh, You say, one, I looked into the fact that I need to pay taxes on dividends, regardless of if they're reinvested into my portfolio. And I want your output on it when it comes to calculating the net income you will get from your dividends. Two, I've noticed that you have no interest in stocks from the marijuana industry. Why? On your first question, you bring up that dividends are taxed regardless of if they're reinvested or not. That's true. Dividends get taxed because it's money you're being paid. It's income you're earning. You own shares in these companies. These companies are paying their shareholders for owning the companies. That's what a dividend is. So it doesn't matter if you take that money and purchase more shares of different companies. You're earning that income. You could use it to buy groceries or you could use it to reinvest. Either way, it's an income you're earning. Now, in terms of taxation and treatment of taxes, Dividends have some of the best tax treatment in forms of income that you can earn if you're going to compare it to something like your salary. For instance, a lot of people don't know that if you're single and you make under 40000 a year, the exact number I think is 39375 if you make under that per year, you don't pay anything in qualified dividends. No taxes on it. Your normal taxation rate federally for normal income you earn through your salary is 12%. So right there, the dividend income you're earning is taxed much better than the salary, the money that you have to actively work for. And then if you're married, it's even better. If you're married and you file joint taxes, you have to make over $78,750 to pay any taxes on dividends. Meanwhile, all the money that you make up to that point, again, you're paying 12% federally. So in terms of comparing different types of income, Dividends have very good tax treatment. The qualified dividend tax rate is 15%, and you have to make over these certain amounts before you even start paying that. Your second question is why I'm not invested in the marijuana industry. There's a couple reasons why. Uh, One of them is I don't feel like the industry is that figured out in terms of our laws and regulations, so I think there's a lot of unknowns there. I also don't see any dominant dividend-paying company that would fit the criteria of what I would invest in. There's lots of other companies. I think there's a lot of risk to them. I've seen valuations go drastically with marijuana industry. So overall, I think it's just a very risky industry with a lot of dynamics at play that I wouldn't feel comfortable investing in. Okay, well, that's going to be all for this episode. I appreciate everyone that shares the channel, subscribes, uh, everybody that joins the Patreon and supports it that way. I appreciate all of you and I'll check in with you guys next time.